I'm privileged to uh, read scripture for us this morning before Pastor John comes up to, to preach. And our passage comes from Luke 2, verses 41 through 52. And I'm reading out of the New International Version. Hear the word of the Lord, church. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The removal of the sacred mask. <laughs> wow, it is, it is so good to see you. Can I, can I start there? It's just good to see you. It's good to be in the room with you. It's good to be in your presence as God's people. It's good to be in the presence of Christ together. I want to acknowledge that. One of the first things I say when I step into the pulpit in my mind, I play through this narrative, I say, okay, Holy Spirit, let's do this. And it is a joy to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. I wanted to say, Jared and Linnea, when you guys like lead worship, I feel like you're taking us somewhere and I don't want the journey to stop. So it's, it's an expression from me to you as a pastor just to say thank you for leading us somewhere this morning. I look forward to more of where you're taking us and as you lead us deeper into the heart of Jesus, thank you for leading us this morning. There's a particular passage here out of Luke's narrative, and there's this one verse that I think is the, the hinge pin. It's the one that I want to draw our attention to this morning, and it comes from verse 49. And Jesus' response to his parents as they ask him the question, where have you been? We've been searching for you anxiously, is his response is, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? What a strange response from a 12-year-old. And yet, I read another translation that said, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? And I thought, now that's a much more robust statement. I had to be about my father's business. A little bit of that New York in him, maybe, who knows. I had to be about my father's business. I have a question for you. Have you ever had that moment in life where you're standing in the mirror, and this, and this is in particular as you're aging, and as you look in the mirror, you think, oh my gosh, my father's looking back at me. 
or my grandfather or somebody in my family, how, how is this happening? And maybe for you, it's, it's your mother looking back at you and you're horrified. Oh my gosh, it's my mother looking back at me. And there's those moments when you realize like, oh my gosh, I, I know the tribe from which I've come. I look like my people. My aunt sent me a picture of my cousin Kyle who lives in Michigan. That's where I grew up, Michigan. You have to say it from the nasally tone of your face. And uh, when she sent me the picture, I could have swore it was me. He's 51. We grew up together. We, we got into trouble together. We ran from my grandfather together out of terror. He, uh, he, was, he was my little companion going through life. And here he is, and I'm looking at this picture going, oh my gosh, I look just like my cousin Kyle as we age, as we now enter into our 50s. It's like I can't get away from my family. And as I age and as my face gets longer and longer, as sometimes that happens, especially with a good European face like mine, I start to reflect more and more my family, the image. I want to throw up a picture of uh, my dad, if you have it. This is my father, Ernie Wolner. We are Wolverine fans, okay? And um, he's got a shirt that says, it's a Wolner thing you wouldn't understand. Um, that's my pops. He's 86. And he is uh, kind of bigger than life. I bet you he's watching right now. Hi, Dad. Nice to see you. Glad you're with us this morning. Um, my father, is a, he was a minister, ministered in a city called Royal Oak, Michigan, outside of Detroit, and pastored the same church for 30 years faithfully. Like, what a guy. But my dad didn't just see himself as the pastor of the Woodlawn Church of God, which it was called. He saw himself as a pastor to the entire city that God had placed him in the city of Royal Oak. That meant that he was friends with lots of kinds of people. And Joy, when you handed me the keys and said, all are welcome, I'm like, uh-oh, this could get dangerous. All are welcome in this place. That is my heart, and I hope that is your heart too, that everyone is welcome here at Evergreen. My dad practiced that. He was friends with uh, local officials, the mayor, police officers, which is great for a kid, right? He uh, was dear friends with the principal of my high school. That's awesome. And he was the kind of person that was involved in lots of different people's lives. And because of that, that meant that the name Wolner had things attached to it. So as a Wolner, I knew that there were certain expectations, certain values, certain things that came with my name. There was like sometimes these hidden expectations. There were things that came along with the Wolner name. So because my name was Jonathan Wolner, that last name gave more weight and significance to who I was and what I represented in the community of Royal Oak and in the school in which I attended. And being a pastor's son, a lot of things came with that, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, right? And boom, out came a Wolner. It's a Wolner thing. I recently had a conversation with my daughter, Alex. Alex is going to be 22 in a couple of weeks. Uh, she stayed behind. She's now living in Napa, California. You might have heard of this place. And she is uh, she's a sweet, compassionate, kind, good girl. And we had this conversation on the phone one day, and she says, Dad, you know, um, sometimes it's hard being your daughter. And I was like, ooh, you know when your kids tell you the truth sometimes? And you're like, oh, wow. 
But she said, because of that, because of who you are and because of who mom is, my, my wife fills a room when she walks into it. She's lively, vivacious. She can dance in a moment, like sponta- spontaneously can just bust into dance. She's uh, bigger than life. She connects with people really well. When I move into a room, I connect with people very well and very easily. And so when Shannon and I come into a room, we're looking to connect. We, we want to connect with as many people as possible. And with that comes a set of expectations. As your kids are watching you, mom and dad, grow and go through life, you're a Wolner. This is what Wolners do. And so when my daughter says, sometimes it's just hard being your daughter. And I thought, huh, because of the weightiness of that name, some of the ways in which we've shaped and formed our own kids, sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously, it comes with a great deal of expectations. So we've always lived with a deep awareness that we're always shaping and forming our kids. Whether we realize it or not, there's something going on. Your kids are a reflection of you. Now, in this particular section of Luke's narrative, we've been situated in the Gospel of Luke through Christmas, and here we are, and we come up to 12-year-old Jesus. And the question that I asked is, who was shaping Jesus at this point in his life? Who were the people that were influencing him? What shaped Jesus? And what 12-year-old Jewish boy finds himself in the temple among religious leaders and elders exercising questions and answers and engaging with them in dialogue around the teaching of the Torah? And and they were amazed at his wisdom. They were amazed at his responses, his questions, and his answers. Now, as I stood back from the text and I looked at the story, one of the big questions that I often ask any text that I'm looking at is why did Luke, this historian, why did he choose this story? What's the significance here? I'm sure that Luke had lots of stories that he could have pulled from, lots of narratives that were out, stories that were circulating in the community that he could have pulled from, but he chose this particular story to talk about a moment in Jesus' childhood that the other gospel writers didn't take into account, but Luke felt that this one was important. Then as I stepped back and I looked at the the text, I thought, where in the heck did he get this story? Because he wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. He didn't walk with Jesus like the disciples did. He didn't sit and listen to Jesus and ask questions. Luke is a historian. He's writing, he's gathering, and it made me think, like, where would you get this kind of a story? And I thought, man, I think only a mother can tell this kind of a story. And I wondered, did, did Luke land the greatest interview of all time by sitting down with Mary and talking to her about Jesus as a boy, Jesus as a child? What was it like raising Jesus? Can you share moments, stories of Jesus' life that stick out? Was this somehow a moment where Luke was able to sit down with the mother of Jesus and ask her these questions. What was it like to raise the long-awaited king, the one that Israel had longed for and prayed for and wanted to come and lead them to redemption? This is the same woman, Mary, who around the age of 13 was given this gift of immaculate conception, a birth of the Messiah, And she made this prophetically powerful statement back in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, where she makes this prophetic declaration of what this promised child will do in the world. I call it Mary's rage against the machine. 
she is singing a song, a prophetic song, and it's got edges to it. She is speaking truth to power. This is not just some 13-year-old kid who doesn't know the scriptures. This is a 13-year-old woman who understands the weight and the brevity of what this gift is going to bring into the world. And so she starts speaking truth to power. A poor woman growing up in Nazareth. Somebody on the outside of any sort of influence and power. Somebody who was, who was seen as bringing a child into the world out of wedlock. You don't think people were aware of this story? You don't think that story circulated around the community of Nazareth? Everybody knew everybody's business. So Mary's marked, and yet Mary utters these prophetic words in Luke chapter one. And this is the woman whom God said, I'm going to bring myself into the world through you, through a poor marginalized, somebody on the outside of any influence, somebody with a prophetic edge, somebody with courage and power through you, Mary. And why do I think the possibility of this story coming from Mary? What, what, what was it that stemmed this in my mind? And it's the verse 51 where it says, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Only a mother could say that, right? It's like, oh, she treasured these things in her heart. Something in that interaction, in that moment, where she's engaging, she's asking a question that any parent would ask, where in the heck have you been? And he responds with a rhetorical question. Did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? What 12-year-old kid says that? A 12-year-old who was formed and shaped by a woman of courage, a father who is considered righteous. How would Joseph have heard that response? Didn't you know, Joseph, that I had to be about my father's business? I don't know. Joseph, who was called a righteous man, a, a sadiq is the translation that they use. And a sadiq wasn't somebody who was just good, but somebody who was well-respected in the community, that somebody who upheld the Torah, who lived by the beautiful laws of God and practiced the law of God. This was Joseph, an upright, good man who valued scripture. Here's Mary uttering these words that reveals she's steeped in tradition. She understands they're going to Jerusalem. This is a practice that they did every year. So they're in this rhythm where they value scripture. They value the love of God and coming to worship and offering sacrifice. These are the people who raised Jesus. It's a Jesus and Mary thing. It's a Jesus, Joseph, and Mary thing. And with that comes this. I had to be about my father's business. Mary, the great composer of the Magnificat, Mary's rage against the machine, her prophetic edge spilling out. It doesn't surprise me at all that Jesus would then grow and to become the kind of man who valued women. It doesn't surprise me in the least bit that we would find Jesus going to women caught in adultery, women who were considered harlots or pushed out into the margins. It doesn't surprise me in the least bit that Jesus would seek these kinds of people out and pronounce to them, I've come for you. I've come to announce the good news that the kingdom of God is here for people like you because it's a Mary and Joseph thing. 
It doesn't surprise me that Jesus the man would have had a heart for harlots and people, women who were considered objects to be controlled or used at their own disposal. We see Jesus the man interacting with a Samaritan woman. You're not supposed to interact with Samaritans. They're gross. And here's Jesus seeking out a Samaritan woman. Here's Jesus showing up at a theological discussion. It says he showed up at a banquet which is a theological dialogue with other religious leaders. And he shows up with a woman. And the woman come in and she crashes the party. She jacks the party up. She lets down her hair. She pours out perfume on the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, this woman actually gets it. The rest of you, you don't understand what I'm about. It doesn't surprise me in the least bit that Jesus would be the kind of person who would interact with these people. We see Jesus coming to the aid of a woman who was dragged out into the public square to be stoned because she had been caught in an act of adultery and the law demands that she be stoned to death. And we see Jesus making a profound statement. Let anyone without sin, you go ahead and throw the first stone. And to quote one of my dear friends, Paul Duncan, you need to know that love doesn't throw stones. Isn't that a t-shirt waiting to happen? You need to know love doesn't throw stones. It's a Jesus thing. It's a Mary and Joseph thing. By the age of 12, right before he's considered to be a man according to Jewish tradition by the age of 13, even before Jesus steps into his manhood among his peers, Luke makes note, and Mary is quick to remember the story that this 12-year-old boy knew one thing for sure, that he had to be about his father's business. And then Luke tells us that Jesus goes back to Nazareth with his parents. He obeys his parents. He's a good boy. And for the next 21 years of Jesus' life, he dedicates himself to the study of Torah he dedicates, he dedicates himself to learning the art of asking questions and responding with good questions because it's a Jewish thing as he develops and becomes a rabbi, which is a whole other teaching that we may get to later on. This same Jesus who says, I must be about my father's business. Now, I think we could use the expression that even at the age of 12, Jesus set his face in a particular direction. And it got me to thinking, what, what direction is my face set? Like when I get up in the morning, what pulls me into the day? What am I gazing at? What am I going after? Jesus' face was set in a particular direction. And, and we see that in his teachings. We see that in his actions. I must be about my father's business. Now back to my own father for a moment, Ernie Wollner. It's a Wollner thing. 86 my dad has a motto that he developed and that he has lived by for most of his life as a minister. And the motto is simply this, I exist and I live to make the love of God visible. That's it. It's not hard. It's not complicated. It's not like some theological statement. He says, I live to make the love of God visible. And he does it every day. He seeks to make sure that everyone around him knows that they are loved, that they are seen, that they are valued. I seek to make the love of God visible. This is what he moves forward. It's a Wollner thing. Living his life in such a way that people actually get to see what God's love is actually like. 
interacting through a human, through word, action, through hospitality, through generosity. For Jesus, his face was set in a direction. I have to be about my father's business. Question, what happens when an entire community of Jesus followers get together and we set our face in a direction and we start making declarations as a people, hey, we have to be about our father's business because it's an evergreen thing. It's who we are. And when we deter from that, we remind one another that's not who we are, this is who we are. Instead, we are a people who have to be about our father's business. I was part of a faith community in Walnut Creek, California called Open Door Church. And it was such a privilege for me to be on staff at Open Door to learn from them, but they had these three things that they, they integrated into our worship services. And as one of the pastors, it's one of the things that we would always say. And I want to share these things with you this morning because I think that they will then help shape and form who we are as people as we move forward. But the reason why we gather on Sundays, the reason why we get together is obviously not to be entertained, but there are three things that I think can mark our gatherings. And the first one is this, to remember the way of Jesus, to realign our lives around the way of Jesus, and then to reorient our lives around the way of Jesus. And these are helpful for me as a minister because the purpose of what we get together is that we need to remember because let's be honest, friends, we have a tendency to forget who we are really quick. And then we start to act like a fool because we forget who we are. And when we forget who we are, we start to lose the plot. And we start to turn our face in all sorts of weird directions. And yet when we remember who we are and whose we are and where our face is fixed, we remember we gather in the name of Jesus Christ and we wanna be about the Father's business. So we remember, and I'm going to remind us, and we as your leaders are going to remind you as we sing, as we pray, as we gather together to help us remember that we must be about our Father's business. But we also realign. And I think that word realign is so helpful because there's times in life where we get bent in certain directions or we get out of sync, but we have to realign ourselves around the Father's business and what the Father is up to in the communities that God has placed us. Now, since I've been in Seattle, we moved into our home in Columbia City. Columbia City, what's up? And here we are in Columbia City, and one of the things that I've been doing every morning when I wake up is I simply say this, good morning, Seattle, I love you. Now, I don't know if that's going to do anything, but I am practicing, and I am curious, and I want to fall in love with the city that God has placed me in. I want to I fall in love with it and be there and be committed and, and know my neighbors. And so when I wake up in the morning, I say, good morning, Seattle, I love you. And then I start to think about the neighbors that I've met in this last month. I think of Jackson who lives across the street. I think of Mike and Alan next door and Naomi and Merle. I think of, of uh, Marta. I, th I think of Evan and I think of Ethan and I think of Malcolm and I think of all these people that make up my neighborhood in Columbia City and I wanna know these people and I wanna love these people and I wanna make sure that these people know that they are seen and valued and loved simply because of who they are, not because of anything that they do because it's, it's a Jesus thing. And I want to be about my father's business, 
And so I'm practicing and I, I want to constantly remember but also realign and then we also want to reorient our lives so that we are not the center of our own existence and that we knock ourselves off at the center or we decenter ourselves and place Jesus at the center axis of our lives and that our lives actually rotate around Jesus and not the other way around. It's not that I'm inviting Jesus to come in and bless my plans and agendas. I'm asking the king, what are you up to? And how do I participate in that? What can I do to step into your rhythm? Because we want to remember always who we are and that we serve a king who is always about his father's business. And we want to realign every bit of our lives that are out of whack or get bent in certain directions or to catch ourselves when we're gossiping or judging or, or doing things that aren't who we are that make us feel yucky. But we want to be the kinds of people that constantly remember and realign and then reorient our entire lives around the priorities of Jesus to make his priorities our priorities. It's an evergreen thing. May we be a people who live with a deep awareness as we remember, reorient, and realign ourselves around the priorities of Jesus, that we might be a people who say, actually, it's an evergreen thing. And when people ask the question, so, Where's Evergreen? What are they up to? Oh, we have to be about our Father's business. Didn't you know? We are marked by the way of Jesus. So we have set our face in a particular direction. Didn't you know that we had to be about our Father's business? At Evergreen, this is what we do. We rage against the machine. We speak truth to power. We don't run away from darkness and suffering and pain and chaos. We actually run to it. We run into the heart of the chaos because that's what Jesus' followers do. It's an evergreen thing. And we move towards the dark parts of society because we know we have the greatest hope that the world needs. Now, I want you to pull out your half sheet. Does everybody have this? We're going to do a little bit of a practice this morning, a writing practice before we come to the table to partake of communion together. And if you have a pen, some sort of writing utensil, this is your opportunity to write, or you can make drawings. I don't care. But on this thing, it says on the top, it's an evergreen thing. And the first statement is, we do not. Instead, we are a people who, I think it's really important to, for me to understand who you are and to understand what you value as a people as I think about this community. And I recognize and acknowledge that God has been at work here for a long time. I am not coming in going, here's what I think you need to do. I want to recognize what the Holy Spirit is doing and I want to participate in that. But I want to understand you as a people. And so would you take a moment and simply write, we, and think about us as a community, we do not, and I wrote one as an example. How about this? Uh, we do not settle and believe that we are right and need to win the argument. Are you with me? Oh, no? Okay. Instead, instead, we are a people who admit when we are wrong and enter into conversation with a humble and listening heart because we value relationships above everything else. Are you with me? Yeah. Like, especially us as leaders, to admit when we're wrong. May we be the kind of leaders that say, I'll be the first one in line to admit, yeah, I missed it, I messed up, because I want to grow. 
And I want to change, and I want to evolve. I want to become more and more like Jesus, so I don't want to hold on to things. I don't always have to win the argument. So what is it, friends? What is it? We do not. Instead, we are a people who... And then we as your pastors, we want, to, we want to read through these. We want to understand where your heart beats and what you're sensing. And, and maybe through this practice, we'll find some consistencies and we'll start to go, huh, I see some consistent themes among our people. Maybe this is who God is bringing us to be as we step into the future together. Um, Jared and Linnea are going to lead us in a song and as they're doing that, I invite you to listen to the song and then uh, continue to write if you want to, to discern with the Spirit. And when you're done, at the end of our gathering, there's a basket by the, by the door. You just simply drop your sheet of paper in there. We'll disinfect the paper, and then later we'll read the paper. But please do that as a practice this morning and let this song minister to your heart as we prepare for communion. Will you stand with me and receive the benediction? May we be a people who wake up tomorrow morning if Jesus decides to give us another day, who begin by saying, okay, Holy Spirit, let's do this. And now, may the Lord God bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and may you be deeply aware that as his face shines upon you, you become shiny people that reflect back the goodness of God, the all-encompassing radical goodness of the announcement of the kingdom of God is here, and people, we as evergreen people, are about the Father's business. And may he lift up his countenance upon you and give you his shalom, the kind of shalom that buzzes and hums at the center of your very being that moves you through every day. Go now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace be with you.